If you are a sports fan, October, I know for Ken, means the World Series is ready and right around the corner. When I say World Series, how many of you could care less about the World Series? Raise your hand. I had an idea in this church, it'd be, it'd be like that. For me, baseball is like watching paint dry. Nine innings is too much for me. But that wasn't always the case. Actually, when I was a little kid, Ken, you might not believe this, but in 1973, baseball was my first love. There's a picture of me, Kings Island, Cincinnati, Ohio. I lived in Columbus, southern Ohio. And at that time, that was my favorite t-shirt, and it has the logo of the Cincinnati Reds. Cincinnati Reds probably in that time was one of the best baseball teams in the history of Major League Baseball. They had players like Johnny Bench, probably heard of Johnny Bench, or Ken Griffey Jr., Joe Morgan, Dave Concepcion, but they had one player on that team that really is the reason why I was so interested in baseball. Ken, do you know what player I left out? Pete Rose. Pete Rose, my dad would say, Chris, when you play sports, you need to play like Pete Rose. Pete Rose was known as Charlie Hustle. He did everything with everything he had. So if he got walked on four balls, normally a guy gets walked, he'll walk to first base. Pete Rose would sprint to first base. If he had a single and it was going to be a close call at first, he would do a head slide to first base. And I remember one of the neatest things he did, my dad was especially impressed about, is if he had a single and they kind of lollygagged the ball back to the pitcher, he would steal second base after single. And I tried to do that when I played baseball. It was one of my objectives. I did it one game. I'll never forget it. Little League, I had a single, and they were just kind of throwing it in, and I stole second. My coach got irate. Weeks, what are you doing? I'm playing like Pete Rose, coach. I'm playing like Pete Rose. So for a while, I was, really, I was really a baseball fan. And I'd get Sports Illustrated, and I'd read Sports Illustrated articles, and in 1989, an article came out about Pete Rose. He was found betting on baseball games he either managed or coached. He would bet thousands of dollars on some games. They asked him, did you bet? And he lied about it. I mean, they did this extensive research, and they realized he was lying, and he did do it, and so they, they basically gave him a lifetime ban from baseball. So he's not allowed to be voted for the Major League Hall of Fame, even to this day. It was interesting, from that time on, it really crushed my spirit about the game of baseball. Later on, they had these, two of my favorite batters were Jose Canseco, and he was found to be a steroid user. Then they had the strike, and I was done with baseball. And to this day, I really can't even watch it. And I would say all because this glory that I thought Pete Rose had, this luster, fell. He became a fallen hero to me. And so today, we're going to talk about how this can actually be true in the Christian church. And the title is Losing Your Halo. In the same way, that in that area of baseball where because of his, really I would say because he broke the rules extensively, it ruined it for a little kid like me. If you're not careful in your Christian walk, there's a very real possibility that you too can, in a sense, fall from grace. 
That there's this aftermath that will come after you that will leave a bad taste in other people's mouths when they hear the name of Christ. And so today, we're going to talk about that. So if you can stand, the title is Losing Your Halo. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you may be seated. So this section... This section is coming off of Paul's last discussion about how he would do anything for the sake of the gospel. He wouldn't even take pay for the sake of the gospel. Now he's jumping into um, what he has done in his life to make sure the gospel would not be tarnished. And so if we look at the very end of chapter 9, he explains the way he lived his life. The attitude he took towards Christianity. Specifically, the very last verse of chapter 9, I want you to look at. Here's what it says. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control. The NIV says, I discipline my body, and I make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The NIV says, so that after I preach to others, I won't be disqualified for the prize. And so the question that has troubled a lot of scholars and Bible teachers is this last word. What does it mean to be disqualified? Some will teach disqualified means even though you've accepted Christ, you can lose your salvation. The only problem I have with that is it contradicts a lot of what Paul said in the New Testament. So for instance, in Ephesians 1, verse 11 through 13, he says that when you believe, you are included in Christ. And you are given the Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing your inheritance until the day of Christ. 
There's another verse in Philippians that says, He who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. So I would say, theologically, if you are truly saved, I don't think you can lose your salvation. However, I do believe you can be disqualified. The word disqualified in the Greek means to fail the test. It means soil that has lost its nutrients, so it's hard to grow anything out of it. Peter says it's like metal that is tried in a furnace, and if it's disqualified, it doesn't have a lot of metal, not a lot of silver or gold. It's mostly dross. That's the idea of being disqualified. When I was in fifth grade, I'll give you an example. When I was in fifth grade, my sister said, Chris, you're pretty quick. Why don't you join a track team? So I decided to join a track team at my elementary school. And I was pretty fast. And so they put me on the short sprint relay team where each leg runs a 100-yard dash. And you hand off a baton, and it goes around. Well, our team was really, we were a fast team. So we were given the middle lane. And I can remember I was on the first leg of that dash. The line judge said, on your mark, get set, go. The, the uh, gun went off, and I started sprinting. I took off like a shot. And I can remember being the very first person to hand off the baton. When I handed off the baton, I immediately left the track. I never ran at race before, but right after I handed off the baton, I took a step to the left, and I ran into a competitor that was also racing, and he fell down. And I didn't think anything of it, and I walked to the middle of the grass, and I watched how our team won the first leg, second leg, third leg, and we won the race. And I'm like, yes, we're going to get a medal, my first race. But my coach came over to me and with red face was screaming, what is wrong with you? I mean, screaming. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? He goes, Chris, we have been disqualified. We don't get a medal. And our time means nothing. I was so distraught by the coach screaming at me, I never ran track again. I never ran track again. Because I was disqualified. That's the idea. Because of my mistake, there are no medals, no honor, no nothing. I didn't lose the spot on my team. I chose to leave the spot on my team. But it was, I made the coach furious. Paul is using the word here in exactly the same way. If you are not living a disciplined life for Christ, there's a good chance that your life on earth may lose its ability to bring glory to God and future honor and reward for you in heaven. Let me say that again. If you are not living a disciplined life for Christ now, there's a good chance that the life you're living on earth may lose its ability to bring glory to God now and you may even lose your honor and reward later in heaven. There may be, even be some people right now in the church, right now, who are so upsetting to God, even though they're his children, yes, you're part of his family, but you're so upsetting to God that his presence doesn't, ling doesn't go with you. People don't recognize his glory in your life. That's the idea of being disqualified. And this should scare you. 
Because that's the whole point of what we just read and what we're going to go through. Paul is warning those in Corinth, he's warning us at Kent City who do not live disciplined lives for God that we have to take heed. So what he does is he first of all begins with giving historical continuity. He's going to say in the same way that Israel in the Old Testament displeased God, we follow in their steps. And if something happened to them, don't think it's not going to happen to you. So look what he says in 1 through, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, brothers and sisters, part of the family of God, that our fathers, so it's a familiar relationship, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, as it was with them in the Old Testament, so it is with us. They were privileged, so were we. And he's going to talk about how they were privileged. He's going to say, he's going to give events, the verse, and then the lesson. The first thing he talks about is the cloud. In Exodus, when they left Egypt, the cloud of God's glory followed them. At day, it led them by day. And at night, it became a pillar of fire to protect them. So God initiated the leadership over Israel, and protected them with his love. In the same way now in the church, God leads us, protects us, and provides for us. That's what Galatians 3 says. If you are in Christ, he leads you, takes care of you. Then the sea. The sea is probably the greatest event in the Old Testament. It's the starting point in the mind of the Israelites when they really became God's covenant people. What is the sea? Well, because God was leading them out of bondage from Egypt, the Egyptians got mad and they started chasing them with their chariots. They're going to kill the Israelites. And they, they were stopped at the Great Red Sea, the Great Sea. So on the east side, they're bordered by this ocean. On the left side, they got a thundering army ready to ravage them. So in a real way, they were at the point of death. So what God did is he opened up the Red Sea and led them through the waters, sort of like baptism, where we have died in Christ. And the waters of baptism show how we have died, but we have been resurrected, rescued. So it's really redemption. So you could say it like this, it's from passing from death to life. So in the same way the fathers passed from death to life, so have we. Then he talks about the bread. The bread is an amazing story to me. I, I don't think we think about this too often. But imagine living in a desert. You can't till the sand. You can't plant seeds. So how do you live? They're desperate. So they scream out to God, we're hungry. He goes, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll take care of you every day. For 40 years, every day, you don't have to work. All you got to do is walk out your front door and look at your front yard and there will be like wafers, white, crispy wafers. And if you eat them, they'll taste like honey. It's called manna. Just gather enough for the day. If you gather too much and you try to store it, it will rot and get maggots. And the point of it is, is God will daily provide grace in the same way he does for us. And then the final one is the water. 
They were in the desert, and they needed the life-giving sustenance of water. You can live for a while without bread, but not water. And so Moses struck the rock so they had water. So what he's saying here is Paul is reminding us at the end of verse 4, they all drank from the same spiritual drink that we did, which is Christ, which God, in the same way, took care of them, he takes care of us through Christ. The point of this statement, one writer says, is to show the continuity between Israel and the Corinthians and to show that in a way they sacramentally were joined to God in a type. So for instance, they would say the cloud and the sea is a type of baptism included in the family of God. And it's also a type of Lord's Supper, participate in the life of God. And so what he's saying here is that as it was in the Old Testament, they have a privileged position, so do we. However, don't take it for granted, because look at verse 5. Verse 5, and the NIV says, and yet, other versions in the ESV, it says, nevertheless. He's saying, okay, they may have this privileged position. God takes care of them. He leads them. He provides for them. However, with most of them, God was not pleased. He was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. What this phrase means is that they were strewn all over the desert. They were disqualified from receiving the prize of the promised land. Why? I was speculating... It's doing some research. The first generation of people that were rescued out of Egypt died in the wilderness, all except two. Does anybody know who the two were that didn't die? Joshua and who else? Caleb, right. Joshua and Caleb. Out of that first generation, just given a conservative number, there were 1,078,000. So take, take away two, 1,077,998. Israelites who left Egypt and watered in the desert for 40 years, all of them died but two, meaning 26,950 people died a year in the desert. That's 77 people a day. And you think COVID's bad. Why? What madness did they do? I was reading, a, I was reading one commentator said, Israel's behavior was madness. They had, they had everything in God and yet they displeased him. One writer says, uh, madness, the best definition of madness, madness is this. Madness is when a child of God is blinded by this false sense of security in their position in God. Because, I'm, because I'm a, I've been baptized or because I participate in communion, I'm okay, right? And so because they think they have this false sense of security, they engage in deliberate sins that are simply daring God to judge them. That's madness. So Paul's going to get very specific on the madness. Look at verses 6 through 11. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. Desiring evil is madness. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
So here he's going to give four examples now of how they participated in madness. And in the same way, just like the fathers did, the Corinthians are starting to continue this madness. And he's trying to say, stop it. And he's trying to tell us, don't do this. So the first madness is he describes the party in the bottom of Sinai. Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments and said, hey, God wants to speak to you. And they said, we'll do whatever God says. The first commandment is have no other gods before you. Then Moses goes up to get the tablets. But it takes him a while, 40 days. And while he, 40 days, 40 days isn't too long. Caleb is 40 days long, doesn't seem long. In 40 days, they said, hey, it's taking Moses too long. Why don't we make our own gods? So they made a golden calf. They started taking all their gold, making a calf, and they started partying to the point where it says they were out of control. That's what this quote here is in verse 7. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They, they put off all of these constraints and they thought they were free now to do whatever I want. 3,000 of them died when Moses came down and said, what is this sound? Told the Levites to put a sword on their side and slaughter everybody who's participating in idolatrous revelry. 3,000 died in a day. The next one is verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. What's this about? The Baal of Peor. The Baal of Peor is the seduction of the Moabite women to the Israelite men. And they brought them to Baal, and they said, let's worship Baal together. And the way that we do is through fertility rites of idolatry and sexuality. And this is the problem the Corinthians were getting into. And that's why Paul's saying, don't do it. Why? Because 23,000 died in a day. Actually, in the Old Testament, it says 24,000. So there's this big article written on what happened to the thousand missing dead. You can research that on your own. And then you go to verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. If some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. What's the test? They got sick and tired of the manna, so they started whining and complaining, wanting to go back to Egypt, saying, we had it so much better in slavery than living by your grace. And so God sent serpents, venomous serpents, to stop their venomous tongues from their whining and complaining. And he's telling the Corinthians, be careful not to be full of ingratitude and impatience with God. Dangerous to be impatient with God. And then there's one more, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. What is this about Korah? Didn't like Moses. He was a guy that didn't like the leadership of Moses. And he grumbled. And he said, I don't like Moses. I want to lead. So a lot of these people that joined Korah, the, the earth opened up and swallowed them. And then more people are upset that they were swallowed. So God sent an avenging angel to kill 14,700 of them. And you know who rescued those people? Moses and Aaron. They held up incense to stop it. So here's what Paul is basically saying. Don't continue to do what they did because you're going to be disqualified. Then he write, wrote, these stories are written down in verse 11. These things happen to them as an example. But they're written down for us. Why are they written down for us? Because we are the last testimony until Christ returns. 
So stop grumbling. We are here to bring glory to Him. Just because we're part of the church, because we might have been baptized, because we have God's grace on a daily basis, doesn't mean we should engage in deliberate sin because it will still provoke God. They're scary stories. And yet, and yet, verse 11 says, we're not destined necessarily to the same destiny they were. Verse 11 says, these happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So what he's hinting at is you don't have to follow in the same destruction as they do. There's hope. You can look at it like this. You can still do what they did and go in the past, or you can change and make your future bright. I took a quote here from Lord of the Rings where Frodo, the main character, went to this well, and this, this elf, Galadriel, showed him the future, and he said, can, is the future set in stone? And she said, even the smallest person, and I'm saying even the smallest person with God, can change the course of the future. That's the point. That's why he wrote this. He didn't write it to say you're destined to destruction. He said you can change. You can be different. So he's going to give three exhortations of change. And if you listen to these and take heed, they can, they can save you from being disqualified. The first one we find in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So what he's saying is he's saying, number one, realize pride is going to blind you to your own sin. He's saying, if you think you're standing firm, if you think you have it all together, be careful. Don't let pride think you're, you've arrived. Even though you're a member of Christ's bride, even though you've been baptized and received daily grace, don't take your position for granted. Instead, all of us must realize, realize we still have the same heart that they had in Israel. We have that dark side in there. So be careful. And the moment you start thinking you are deserving honor and benefits, it's the exact moment when God gets provoked. So be very careful not to be blinded. Second thing we find in verse 13. No temptation has overtaking you that is not common to man. Now, when, now, you really need to listen to this principle. Second principle of avoiding disqualification is this. Don't think you are uniquely targeted or a helpless victim because you're not. You are just undergoing temptation that's common to man. It's common. We're human. In other words, you must not think you are unique in your suffering or in your situation, or thinking that, man, nobody's ever had it as bad as me. Because I've hurt so much, because I've had to undergo so much, I should be kind of allowed to at least let go once in a while. I remember talking, this about 10 years ago, to a person who was really struggling with same-sex attraction, really struggling with it. And they came up to me and they said, you will never know how hard it is to stay pure when you have this same-sex attraction. So I asked them. I said, do you think lust is different for heterosexuals than it is for those struggling with 
homosexuality? Or is lust, lust? Being human means we all struggle with temptation. No one is born pure. It is just we each have our own area of vulnerability and we need to watch it. No one has uniqueness. If you think you have it bad, some of you really do think, I, you just don't know, Chris. All right, let me ask you this. Have you ever been thrown in a pit by your loving brothers, sold into slavery, seduced by your boss's wife, refused her, then thrown into jail for 11, I think it's 14 years? Has that ever happened to you? It happened to Joseph in the Old Testament. And he said, far be it from me should I sin against the Lord than give in to my temptations. But boy, he was, his, none of his brothers wanted him. They wanted to kill him. He had every right to just go do what he wanted to do. Nope. No. And then 13b has, this is the best part. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Often we read this wrongly. We think this means that God will never give you a situation that will be too much for you. That's not what this is talking about. This is specifically talking about temptation. When it comes to temptation, the truth is God will always provide for you a door of escape. Always. He sees you. And he won't leave you to fend for yourself when it comes to temptation. So when you're tempted, you could pray this promise. God, your reputation is on the line. Give me a way out. And he will. He promises. He'll provide a way out for you. The real question is, will you take it when it's given? Will you run? Will you flee? Can you say no? So, if you are here and listening, that means you're not disqualified yet. That's great news, honestly. There is a chance for you to change your future because with God, even the smallest person can change. Some of you right now are skating on the edge of disqualification. And you're doing that because you think nobody can see. If nobody can see, then God can't see. But God can see. And here's what I would say. Here is the real question. Not about what is he going to do to me now. The real question is this. Do you really want to hear this phrase when you die, well done? Because it's not a given. We go to funerals and it's almost like the, we put it on the end of the, of the funeral sermon. And now we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not always true. Some people will be disqualified in a sense there will be no reward. They'll get in and God will say, you just made it. Do you want to hear, well done? Last week, some news came out about one of my spiritual heroes. I mean my hero. And it's quite troubling. I'm not going to share it because I'm not sure the facts are true, but it sounds like these facts are true, and if the facts are true, my heart is breaking. A person's failure doesn't hurt my faith in Christ, but it does hurt 
Because we look for people that inspire us, that we can imitate. And when those that we see as our leaders fall, sometimes it really puts huge stumbling blocks. And I think you don't realize who's watching you. You're being watched. On the other hand, on the other hand, when my dad died, one of the greatest gifts he ever gave me, my siblings, and my mom is that there was no dirt on their marriage. He was faithful his whole marriage. There was no rumors. There was no hidden stories. And you can see it on my mom. She's free. He finished the race with honor. And I love telling my children about my dad because he's someone that truly sacrificed for the honor of Christ. And I thank God for that. My question for you is, when you die, how will you be seen? 